Today's reading is Matthew 14, 13 through 33. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces left over, and those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter asked him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God, the word of the Lord. So last um, weekend, uh, a lot of us were gone. We were on retreat up at the uh, Carlson's cabin, which was great, and uh, I got word back from Matt, and everything went really well, except the microphone was popping a lot, and so I just want you to know if the mic starts popping, I'm going to abandon ship very quickly, and I'm just going to go to the pulpit. So, but so far, no mic popping, right? Okay, so, and can you hear me in the back? Stuart, can, can, you, can you hear me? <laughs> yeah, well, you, I asked the wrong person. Oh, smart Alec, all right. So here, what we have this morning as we're going through Matthew, when we get to Matthew 14, that these are two of the most well-known stories in the Gospels. Jesus feeding the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water. In fact, Jesus' feeding of the 5,000, it's the only miracle that occurs in all four Gospels. And in Matthew and Mark and John, these two stories, feeding 5,000 and Jesus walking on water, they occur back to back. And so there's some connection between Jesus' feeding miracle and his walking on the water miracle. And so when we see these two stories put together, we ask, what are the commonalities between them? And I think the most simple and most basic, and, 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 and I'd argue most obvious, is that both of them are, humanly speaking, utterly impossible. There's no way you can feed more than 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. 
And there's no way you can walk on water unless that water is frozen. And we're talking here about the Sea of Galilee, which never freezes, you know, not Lake Harriet or something like that. And so these two stories, they immediately confront us with these inescapable questions of of the categories of the miraculous and the supernatural. And we live in an age that is skeptical of of miracles. And in that sense, we're, we're in great company. The disciples, the people who spent the most time with Jesus, they didn't expect these miracles, these things to happen either. They didn't go to Jesus, you know, at the end of the day when, when, when the crowds were hungry, and they say, well, Jesus, the crowds are hungry, so you, you know, make some food out of nothing. They said, send the crowds away. And, and when they were, you know, battered by the wind and the waves in the middle of the night and a figure came to them on the water, they didn't think, oh, well, of course, there's Jesus coming to rescue us. No, they were horrified. They were terrified. They thought that they were seeing a ghost. And so these are stories where where, where Jesus is doing the impossible. And so disciples then and disciples now are faced with these questions. Who is this? But but related and, 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 and just as important is this next question. Well, what does he want us to do? And these stories, they, they, they strain credulity, and they should. They did that for the disciples, and they still do that for us today. And the question, question isn't just, you know, did that actually happen, but what does that then mean for us? Now, William Barclay, he was a Scottish churchman, and he was one of the most famous kind of popular commentators on the Bible in the 20th century. You'll see these little William Barclay commentaries everywhere. Lots of people have them. And he's really, he's a, he was a, uh, not just a pastor, but he was a, a, a New Testament scholar. And so his, his commentaries are often very insightful, and they are interesting, um, and they're really useful for devotional purposes. But when he comes to the story of the feeding of the 5,000, he falls into what I call the rationalist trap. And I think he comes far short of exploring this story's full meaning. He says that what happened in the feeding of the 5,000 wasn't a miracle of, of, you know, multiplication of food, but it was a miracle of sharing. And so he says, what are the odds that, you know, all of these people, this 5,000 men, we're not counting women and children, that, that they would follow Jesus out into the wilderness, you know, a desolate place, and not bring at least a little food with them, you know, uh, we don't hardly go to the YMCA, my family, without bringing a few granola bars along with us, you know? So, so what are the odds that all of these people would rush to follow Jesus and, you know, not bring at least a little food with them in case they needed a snack? And so Barclay speculates that when the crowd saw Jesus taking this meager amount of food and sharing it with his disciples, you know, they had this gnawing guilt inside of them that, that, that said, well, I shouldn't be so selfish, and so I'm going to take out my food now and share it with those who don't. And before I hadn't been willing or, or prepared to share this food with those who didn't, but now, because Jesus did this, it's like the ultimate guilt trip into sharing, and that is a real miracle. That's the same interpretation I heard when I went to the Minneapolis Institute of Art almost 15 years ago. Amy and I were given these tickets to go get a preview uh, of, of this really remarkable uh, piece of art, the St. John's Bible, which I don't know if you're familiar with it at all, but um, the St. John's uh, Benedictine Abbey in, in Collegeville, Minnesota, in the late 1990s, they commissioned, at least for the Benedictines, it was the first illuminated manuscript, you know, handwritten and, and, and illuminated, meaning you, you take the text and you, you highlight portions of it through artwork. It was the first 
illuminated manuscript of the Bible since the inventing of the printing press. Which, I mean, when was the printing press invented? Johannes Gutenberg, when did he do that? 14, you know, the 1480s, 90s, somewhere in there, you know, around 1500-ish. So we're talking like almost 500 years since this had been done. And so it was a remarkable undertaking, and and they, they, they just finished it a few years ago, and it's beautiful. It's this remarkable uh, artifact, this, this remarkable piece of art. And so we got to get this preview. They had, they had finished portions of it, and so they were showing those to the public for the first time in this absolutely incredible, beautiful, illuminated manuscript of, of the Bible. And one of the pages that they showed us uh, was of this from Mark's gospel, this multiplication, this feeding of the five thousand. And so the guy, he was a Welshman, and he was in charge of the, pro- of the project, and so he's showing us this beautiful, um, you know, double page of this miracle. And he says, you know, and, and he's like, for me, the real miracle was, was that people actually shared. And so I just sat there thinking, well, sure, but that's also kind of lame, isn't it? Like, like sharing is a miracle. I mean, you get small children together and they share, okay, that's a miracle, but is that really all that there is to this story? Because if you read this feeding of the 5,000 in John's gospel, it says that the reaction of the crowds when Jesus fed them uh, with this meager amount of food, it says that they wanted to make Jesus, at that moment, they wanted to take him and make him king by force. And that's why he withdrew into the wilderness. And so if someone merely inspired you to share food that you already had, would that be your reaction? This person needs to be king. I mean, it's kind of like a Mr. Rogers moment, which maybe I think Mr. Rogers would probably make a good king. I mean, he's a very nice guy. But it's like, do you just want to seize him and place him in some place of power? So there's something much more mysterious, much richer, much more powerful going on here. And though I don't follow Barclay's line of interpretation, I do think when he's looking at miracle stories, he, he, he asks a really important question because he says, what matters isn't just did this happen, But also he's trying to ask of the text, how does this still happen? How does God still work in this way to bring forth his kingdom into the world? And so I think he's asking a really essential question with that. And so with that in mind, thinking how does God still work in this way to bring forth his kingdom into the world, let's take a closer look at these stories. First, the feeding story. So Matthew tells us that Jesus withdrew because he had just learned of the death of John the Baptist, his beheading. And when he heard this bad news, you know, his, his, his cousin, the person who baptized him, really the forerunner of his own message and movement, Jesus, moved by his grief, withdrew to be by himself to pray. And so in the midst of these incredible stories where Jesus does the impossible, where we see Jesus arguably at his, you know, most divine we just as clearly as ever see Jesus at his most human. What's more human than the desire to be alone in our grief, to escape the demands that are placed upon us by everyone else? But Jesus can't escape the crowds. They see him, and and they follow him out into the wilderness. And and so maybe the real miracle of the story isn't the sharing, if we're looking for sort of a more banal miracle. It's the fact that when Jesus is followed by this crowd, and they won't leave him alone, and, and they interrupt him, that he isn't angry, he isn't annoyed, he isn't resentful. Instead, Matthew says that Jesus had 
compassion on them and healed their sick. That's not the usual reaction of a tired, exhausted, or interrupted person. When evening arrived, the disciples came to Jesus and they said, send the crowds away to go into the villages to buy food to eat because there's nothing for them out here. Now this is prudent advice. The disciples saw that there was a need and so they brought that to Jesus and they said, dismiss the people so they can do something to meet their own needs. Now notice what they didn't do. The disciples didn't see the need and asked Jesus to do something about it. They didn't even think that was possible. He was a preacher, he was a healer, he's not a you know, magician. And nor did they go to Jesus and say, well, here's the need and ask him, well, what should we do about it? No, they saw the need. They saw the 5,000. They brought that to Jesus with their proposed realistic solution of having the crowds go take care of themselves. And this is where things get really interesting. Jesus responds to them, they need not to go away. You give them something to eat. So the disciples see the need. They bring it to Jesus. Jesus hears about it, and he puts it back on them. You do something about it. This, in turn, causes the disciples to look at what resources they have that they could possibly bring to bear on this problem. And what do they have? Five loaves of bread and two small fish. That's not enough food for five people, let alone 5,000. But Jesus asks them, what do they have? And so they go back to Jesus and say, this is it. This is all. And Jesus' response is, bring them to me. And so Jesus invites the disciples to give what they have to him to meet the needs that, 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 they, that they see, but that they believe they lack the capacity or the ability or the resources to do anything about. But here's the truth that Jesus wants his disciples then and, and now to understand. This is not just for the 12. This is for us too. That little is always much in the hands of Christ. Little is always much in the hands of Christ. And so here's the question from this part of the passage that I have for us this morning is, what is the 5,000? The 5,000 is the need that we see in the world that we feel powerless to do anything about. It's the problem we see that we don't believe that we have the ability, the capacity, the resources to be a part of the solution. But for Jesus, the 5,000 is the invitation to not just bring the problem or the need to him. It's an invitation to bring whatever meager resources we have to him too, trusting that he will be able to take them, to bless them, to break them, and then give them back to us to give to those who need them. That's the 5,000. So to put it in a personal way, what's your 5,000? What's the problem you see in this world or in your life or in your community or in your family that you would do something about if you could but you feel utterly powerless or overwhelmed in the face of? And the problems that surround us in this world, I mean, they abound. 
There's as many problems in this world as there are hungry people in the wilderness that Jesus needs to feed. Everywhere around us, rampant problems, loneliness, addiction, you know, gaps in, 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 in achievement and opportunity, division, hatred, incivility, distrust, a polarized society that feels like it's coming apart. I mean, those are 5,000-sized problems. And you could name 5,000 more. But, but what can you bring to Jesus? What need do you see, do you feel that you can bring to Jesus to do something about? So that's the personal version of the question. But, but, but then there's the you know, collective we version of this question. What's our 5,000 as a community, what's a problem that we face, a need that we see that seems beyond our capacity to do anything about it? And I mentioned this at the annual meeting just a couple weeks ago, and I hope you don't get tired of me mentioning it, but I'm going to just keep bringing it up as we go through this year, because I sincerely believe that our 5,000 here in this place is accessibility. Right? It breaks my heart that people can't come to worship here because they can't climb stairs. And it breaks my heart that, you know, uh, we have to carry a wheelchair into the sanctuary, into the church, each and every week. And this isn't a new problem for this building. It's a problem and a solution that have been understood for decades. And good people have looked at this. And yet the answer has always been, for those who can't come in, our rationalist solution, we don't have the resources, like the disciples, we say, send them away. Not because we're mean or because we don't want them here. It's because we can't do anything about it. We lack the capacity. We lack the resources. So the compassionate thing is to say, send them away to another church, another ministry, another place where their needs can be met. But I believe that now is, is the time that Jesus is inviting us. Let, let's bring, what, what, what do we got? Loaves and fishes. Well, let's bring those to him and see what he can do about it. And I'm not going to say much more about it now other than to say that, that that's where as you know, pastors and as leaders and, and as a worshiping community, we're moving in that direction. We're starting to see how we can gather up these loaves and fishes and give them to Jesus. We're, we're trying to go from saying, well, we can't do it because we only have to saying, yes, we only have this, but we can't do it on our own. But we're going to give it to you, Lord, and see what, what, what can you do. That's the feeding of the 5,000. But wait, there's more. Because Jesus isn't done doing the impossible. Jesus makes the disciples get in the boat to cross over to the other side of the lake while he dismisses the crowds. And so Jesus has them get in the boat so he can go be by himself pray. And as they're crossing the lake, they're struggling against the wind and the waves. It's battered. The language is that the, the, the wind was tormenting them. This is the same language that gets used of, of evil spirits tormenting people. So they're in a difficult place, a dangerous place, a risky place, a terrifying place. And in the middle of the night, when Jesus was still alone praying, the boat was still out there on the lake struggling against the wind and the waves. And so there's just a few details that I want us to attend to at this moment of the story. And, and so first is that the disciples had crossed this lake 
countless times before. And yet here they were, struggling. And included in their company were at least four professional fishermen, Peter and Andrew, James and John. They, 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 they knew their way around a boat. They knew their way around this lake, this Sea of Galilee. And yet here they were, stuck and struggling in a storm. And so let that be a reminder to us, a lesson to us, that just because we're an expert or we've been there before, that's no guarantee against struggle in the future. The second detail I want us to notice is that the reason the disciples were in the storm in the first place was because they had obeyed Jesus, because they had listened to him. He told them, get in the boat, cross the lake. And so that's why they found themselves in this predicament. They had been obedient. They had been faithful. And so let us hear and understand that there is no promise that the Christian life will be smooth sailing. In fact, the opposite is quite true. That the more obedient we are to Jesus, maybe the bigger storms there are that we are going to face. I had a, a friend in college who you know, became a, a, a Christian, you know, prayed the prayer, gave his heart to Christ. And I remember one of the things that he said to me was, you know, ever since I became a Christian, it just seems like everything in my life is like falling into place. Things had just started going so smoothly for him. And you go, well, what? and one hand, like, wow, that's great. That's amazing. But on the other hand, what happened when things that seem to fall into place, the pieces coming together, what happens when those pieces start falling apart? When life gets difficult. If your faith is predicated on smooth sailing, it's not going to make it through the storms. And his didn't. And last detail is that when does Jesus come to them? It's during the fourth watch of the night, sometime between 3 and 6 a.m. And so this water walking story, this is a story of extremes. Wind and waves, rowing for hours, middle of the night stuff. And so the truth here is that Jesus so often meets us in a place of human extremity. And the overarching reality we see in the water walking story is this. It's only in the midst of the storm that we can truly experience the amazing power of Christ. And so Jesus, he sees them struggling in in the storm and he walks to them on the water. And they see what we know is Jesus, who we know is Jesus, but they think it's a ghost. They're terrified. And what does Jesus say to terrified disciples? Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answers Jesus with these remarkable words. Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Peter's response has sparked great debate in in the history of interpretation of this passage. Was he wrong to, to ask Jesus to walk on water? Was this impetuous? You know, just one more example of, of Peter's mouth running ahead of, of what was faithful or smart, or is this a paradigm of faith? And, and I tend toward the latter. You know, Peter demand of Jesus, let me walk on the water, prove that it's you. He simply asked Jesus to call him out of the boat. And so Peter got out of the boat, and for a brief moment, he too walked on water before he noticed the wind And began to sink. But for the briefest of moments, Peter did what no one besides Jesus had ever done before. He walked on the water too. 
And so Peter offers us a brief momentary glimpse of the unearthly potential of the church in the world, of what can happen when disciples dare to answer the call of Jesus and leave the boat and walk toward him. And so earlier I asked, you know, what's the, 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 the 5,000? What does that represent? But now my question is this, what's the boat? And the boat is, you know, whatever represents safety and security in the midst of the storm. The, the, the boat is where we are, but the boat is not where Jesus is. The boat is the safety and security that Jesus is calling us from in order that we can come to him. So that's the boat. And so my question for you is, what's your boat? What is it that you might be afraid to step out of in order to follow Jesus' call on your life? This could be the safety and security of a job or a career, the safety and security of, of, of a paycheck, right? Sometimes people who have good jobs even get stuck. They joke, uh, uh, you know, they call it golden handcuffs, Right? Like it's way too costly and hard to leave behind. But there's the safety and security of your home too, right? Your, your, your home is your castle. And so you don't want to leave it or you want to open the doors and let people in. There's the safety and security of your own friend group, people who you've known for years and you're comfortable with. And as Minnesotans, we are notoriously clicky. I'm good, I got my people from high school. Like we're, we're set. Our boats might be our bank accounts that, 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 that we spend essentially on ourselves. Our boats might be these gifts, talents, and callings we have that we're hiding under a bushel. Our boats might be the fact that we never fail because you can't fail if you never try. A boat is a place of false safety, false security that Jesus, Jesus calls us out of in order to risk to fulfill our divine potential. As John Ortberg, the, the pastor of Menlo Park Presbyterian Church, wrote, and it's the title of his book, if you want to walk on water, you've got to get out of the boat. And so that's what's your boat. But again, that, that, that question I want to ask for us is, what is our boat as a, as a community? Where do we find ourselves tempted with false security? And in the church, there's always the false security of, well, we've always done it that way. It can come in, in false security, in, in just being cowardly in the face of storms that in, engulf the broader culture. It, it can come in always hedging our bets. You know, we're never going to go after something unless it's a sure thing. It can be in just basically staying busy behind our walls. You know, we do our thing here. The neighborhood does its thing out there. It can come in this always present temptation to just be inwardly focused, to focus on, you know, the membership's wants instead of the world's needs. And it makes sense because getting out of the boat is scary. It's terrifying. And what Jesus, what we're talking about here is not just taking risks for risks' sake. We're talking about taking risks in order to go where Jesus is, in order to faithfully respond to his call. And, and, and when we notice just how risky this is, you know, the troubles, uh, the reasons for not risking that are all around us, we start to sink. We at least know this, that we can cry out for help. Peter says, Lord, save me. And immediately, immediately at that moment, Jesus reaches out and he does just that. And so when we read this passage, we see that not only does Jesus do the impossible, but he invites us to join him in that work. 
And what do we bring to that joint venture? Not much. Five loaves and two fish in one instant and little faith in another. But little is always much in the hands of Christ. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Please pray with me.